Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 22 of the Fiduciary You podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to ask a quick favor. An easy way to support the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about 30 seconds. It helps promote awareness of the show. And I'd really appreciate it if this podcast has been valuable to you. Thanks so much. My guest today is Will Collins-Dean, who is a senior portfolio manager and vice president, as well as chair of the Investment Stewardship Committee at Dimensional Fund Advisors. He joins me for this latest episode to discuss environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, strategies. Will and I cover ESG investing and the different issues each area tries to target, the overall industry landscape, how approaches to ESG impacts the long-term strategies of publicly traded companies, the ERISA implications based on DOL guidance, how plan advisors and committees should conduct due diligence, and the approach that Dimensional takes to design and implement ESG strategies. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary U podcast. Hey, Will, welcome to the Fiduciary U podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. I think you were my first guest that is a fellow Wake Forest demon deacon. So that is... Uh, that's that's a that's a good start. Go Deeks. <laughs> Go Deeks. Hard to believe. Indeed, indeed. Well, you know, we're going to talk about ESG investing today and I'm really excited for this and and for the audience again to get a really good understanding of of the overall kind of landscape within the industry. Obviously there are ERISA implications as well with some some guidance that was finalized in late December of 2020 by the Trump administration, but then ultimately with the Biden administration coming in, you know, some some uh, some changes in place. We'll talk a little bit about that, but maybe a good place to start. You know, when we think about ESG, you know, it stands for right environmental, social, and governance. Can you maybe just explain what those kind of what those three terms entail as it as it relates to kind of an investment framework and you know, for the audience, is there anything else that that or other concepts that that they need to kind of be aware of as they're considering the ESG landscape? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great place to start. There's certainly a lot of issues that roll up to that framework around ES and G, environmental, social, and governance. And I, you know, I think that's part of the some of the difficulties in getting your arms around these these types of topics. So just by way of example, some issues that might roll up under the E channel and ESG, you think about climate change, global warming, biodiversity, land use, water use, microplastics, you know, the list goes on and on. And the S within ESG can think about your more traditional social issues. So think about like faith-based types of issues, certain clients like screen out uh, tobacco, gambling, alcohol types of related companies. But, you know, given the current backdrop, there are other social issues that have come to the forefront around gender equality, you know, diversity, inclusion, equality, labor rights, human capital management. And so, so you know, that social realm has certainly, I think, under the current environment, gotten a lot of attention recently. And then the G standing for governance. And this really just references the fact that as investors, you have a seat at the table of the companies you own in your portfolio, and you should exercise your voice to influence positive governance practices of those companies. You know, in the, the landscape of ESG, we think that ESG often doesn't get a lot of airtime more recently, but it is very important if you think about the long-term sustainability, viability of a company. You know, that really comes from the top. That comes from management, how management team and board of directors is overseeing and, and managing relevant environmental and, and social risks and opportunities. You know, that that's a very important aspect of the investing process, as well as you know, kind of running a, a company, so really important aspect of ES and G as well. Okay. Um, in terms of, I guess, the second part of your question, which are are there other related terms? And uh, listeners may hear about sustainable investing or responsible investing. You know, I use these sort of interchangeably with ESG investing, and so we'll probably do the same as we continue our conversation. Absolutely, and I think you know one of the the 
one of the things about ESG investing, typically those three terms get lumped together, but you know, what really comes down from a, you know, from an investing perspective and, and as it relates to ERISA as well, that they really are separate and distinct. And when it comes to figuring out what areas you want to focus on, depending upon what the areas you want to focus on has a really big impact in kind of the framework that you choose and, and, you know, the, the, the goals and, and even within those, you know, the, the, the goals within each one of those letters, if you will, could be very different depending upon the perspectives that either the investor or the fiduciary deems to be highest priority. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just to build on what you're saying there, if you think about a lot of the environmental issues, um, oftentimes there is a scientific basis for you know which environmental issues have a link to a direct link to uh, systemic issues facing the world. You know, we do a lot of work and consult with climate scientists and other experts, and you know, there's a clear link between emissions, for example, and climate change. Whereas on the S, you know, social end of the spectrum, you know that may be driven more by uh, client concerns and, and particular areas and beliefs. And you can imagine different clients might have certain concerns. If you're working with a you know a healthcare-related foundation, for example, they may want to screen out tobacco stocks. If you're working with an endowment, they may want to, um, or they may be concerned with emissions exposure because their donors and constituents want to reduce emissions exposure. So it really does depend, like you said, on sort of client needs, experiences, their potential constituents and clients, and uh, and seeing what you're actually trying to achieve. Right. And so, you know, partly in thinking about that, it sounds a little bit like, you know, probably on the the environmental side, you know, it's it's going to be more kind of research based, whereas maybe on the social side, it's a little bit more subjective, depending upon the beliefs that, uh, you know, that that, an, you know, an investor or a decision maker may have. Yes, it it could certainly be. And our offerings, when we get along and talking about our sustainability solutions versus our socially screened solutions, sort of reflect that. With our socially screened solutions, we're largely aligned with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishop Investment Guidelines. You know, with our sustainability solutions, we have a primary objective of reducing emissions exposure because of that clear scientific link that I talked about before. And so, like you said, yeah, it. It really sort of the nature of of those different topic areas can certainly influence the issues you're trying to address in a portfolio. And so, you know, your role at Dimensional is a senior portfolio manager, and you also chair the Dimensional Investment Stewardship Committee. What does that entail? And and really, how does that kind of intersect with, you know, ESG investing and the strategies that you guys build at Dimensional? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I you can think of it as wearing two hats essentially. One as portfolio manager, which means I'm directly involved in the oversight and management of many of our equity strategies in particular and, and dedicated ESG offerings. So I kind of have that hands-on practical day-to-day oversight and management responsibilities. And that also puts me in a good position to talk with clients across the country. You know, prior to the pandemic, I was I was talking to clients across the country about these types of issues. And then the other hat I wear is as chair of our investment stewardship committee. And investment stewardship relates back to that G component of ESG. You can think of stewardship activities related to uh, encouraging positive governance practices of companies held in our portfolios on behalf of our investors. And specifically with that stewardship committee, they're responsible for setting proxy voting policy for the funds and directing stewardship priorities at the firm. So that that certainly takes up a fair bit of my time and it's been a very exciting area of my job as well to be involved with. So it's, there's kind of a breakdown between maybe strategy on one side and then kind of implementation on the other as portfolio manager. Absolutely. That um, You can also think of it in terms of you know, as a portfolio manager, we're making buy and sell decisions in the portfolios. You know, As our stewardship efforts, as part of the investment process, what do we do once we've got a name in the portfolio? You know, We can add value beyond just changing our weight in that particular name. We can actually engage with companies. We can vote proxies in a way that's going to encourage positive practices at those companies. And we view that as a way of adding value for our investors, that those positive practices should result in higher prices for our investors. 
You know, there's obviously a lot of industry interest in ESG, you know, specifically within the ERISA space, you know, the the proposed and then final rules regarding ESG that were passed by the Trump administration really focused on really pecuniary factors and that that the you know the guess was that that fiduciaries had to focus really just on kind of performance. They couldn't essentially promote the 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 needs of ESG over you know the the kind of financial considerations as it relates to building portfolios and, and selecting securities. I, I saw a study, I think by the plan sponsor Council of America, is that even though there, there's interest and there was a lot of feedback by the industry, and quite frankly, you know, not not really good feeling like kind of the rules were 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 antiquated. And then the Biden administration came in and basically published, you know, guidance that they wouldn't enforce, you know, those rules that were passed. And and more recently, I saw that that I think there there's a bill that has has essentially by the by the Democrats that has been is being kind of pushed to make it easier, not harder, for defined contribution plans and ERISA plans to invest in in ESG strategies. What's interesting is for all the interest, still only about I think the PSCA found that only about less than four, three or four percent of plans actually had ESG options, and partly because of the the fluid nature of guidance. But even when they existed, only about two percent of the 0.2 percent of the assets in plans actually invested in these strategies. There was another survey that I saw that said participants, especially those under forty, have a really high interest in ESG investing, and it even indicated that they may be willing to increase their contribution rates if there were ESG options. I'm not sure I buy that overall because I think that's much more of a you know, a behavioral element, but but nonetheless, you've got this, you've got this this growing interest. So, how have you seen that interest in ESG evolve over the past few years within the uh, within the industry? Yeah, you know, all that I definitely echo what you're talking about there, and we can we can talk about what might be causing some of those disconnects between uh, participants' investment in ESG and and plan sponsors' offering of ESG in the lineup. And, you know, part of that, I think, as you alluded to, is probably some of the uncertainty that's been produced over the years through interpretive bulletins and rulings and so on. So those are all really interesting developments. In terms of what we're seeing in ESG at the industry level, certainly over the last couple of years, we've seen an uptick in investor interest, I would say, which really, I think, makes my job very exciting to just be involved in such a quickly growing space and very quickly evolving space. And I've actually got some data here, rather than just me making that qualitative statement, I've pulled some Morningstar data. If we look at investor flows into sustainability funds over the last two years, we've seen a doubling of net flows into sustainability funds, roughly 50 billion in net inflows in 2020 versus 21 billion in 2019. So about a twofold increase there. Going back an additional year to 2018, we only saw about 5.4 5.4 billion in net inflows. So close to a 10 times increase what we saw three years ago, call it. At Dimensional, our experience has been very similar compared to the industry for our sustainability and socially screened offerings. So these are our dedicated ESG offerings. We saw net inflows of about 700 million in 2019. And then in 2020, that number was closer to 2 billion. So two and a half, three times increase in net inflows there. So we're certainly seeing that that investor interest on our end of things. And I think the, the industry data would point to the same. Now, some of the implications, I think, for investors and advisors, you know, with that increase in investor interest, we're seeing an, a proliferation of ESG offerings as well. So going back to Morningstar data, back 25 years ago in 1994, there were 26 sustainable funds available with assets of about $2 billion. Today, 25 years later, there are around 410 funds, so 16 times the level that we saw in, in 1994 with about 270 billion in assets. So like I said, you're running into this landscape of ESG sustainability, meaning so many different things with so many variety of topic areas and issues, and then a whole bunch of different combinations of how investment managers are applying those issues to offerings, which really complicates the overall 
sort of landscape as it relates to ESG investing. And and we'll di- we'll start to dive in because I think you know it it one of the important things from an ESG perspective, at least in my opinion, is that ESG strategies should probably be an overlay to more of a systematic kind of investment process and philosophy, not necessarily a replacement. But you know, obviously, if you're starting to focus on ESG factors, you could run the risk of becoming you know much more concentrated, especially as you're screening out screening out you know securities, and you know that that could certainly potentially drive risk, but potentially lower expected returns. So we'll get into really from your perspective, how you use ESG strategies as really an overlay to, you know, dimensionals kind of evidence-based approach and philosophy in terms of portfolio weighting and construction. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the lay of the land in terms of stakeholders, because, you know, you've got clients that you talked about uh, briefly, you've got consultants and advisors, you've got vendors. And so there's been a proliferation of, of ratings agencies. And I want to talk a little bit about that as we get into it, because I think one of the challenges, at least in, in my research, is that it's really hard to get an apples to apples comparison between the different ratings agencies. And it's it's kind of a, um, kind of a, maybe I hesitate, maybe it's too strong of a term to say it's a bit of the wild west, but it's kind of unregulated. And so you could get two ratings agencies agencies focusing on, let's say, the same factor, but have different weightings in terms of kind of what the inputs or what the data points that they're looking at. So it, it that could, could drive a dispersion in potential outcomes as well. And you could get just, you know, confusion. You could get one rating agency that looks at and, and rates a fund really highly. And another rating agency could, could you know, rate that fund on a lower basis, but it really comes down to the factors that they're focusing on and the quality of the data that they're getting as they're evaluating that. So we'll talk about ratings agencies. I want to get your perspective on that. You obviously have a, a real growth in, in activists and activist investors who are trying to, to, to drive change. And then there's obviously the, the, the regulation, the regulators, the legislative component as well. And then finally, climate scientists and other other experts, especially when you start to get around environmental and sustainability. So can you just give me or give the audience kind of a lay of the land, maybe starting, you talked a little bit about clients. So I think we've kind of covered that, but but talk about kind of consultants and advisors as, as stakeholders and really, you know, what are the things that they should be focused on and what are some of the, the, the themes or trends that that community is really more focused on? Yeah. That's great. And I, I definitely want to circle back to what you were talking about in terms of uh, specialized data vendors and those providers of uh, various ESG data, because I, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. So definitely want to circle back to that. But getting to your question around advisors and, and consultants and their roles, if we think about the ecosystem around ESG investing, you know, we, we really do. Like I said, I, I've talked to a lot of advisors over the years across the country, and, and we do see a wide range of how advisors are tackling ESG investing. Some may be developing their own views around ESG because of client demand. Uh, and they're looking to understand more. Some have developed a view and actually have a set of ESG, ESG dedicated offerings that complement non-ESG offerings. So sort of a separate standalone solution. And then some firms make it their, their strategy of growth um, for having a singular focus on ESG-focused investing, specifically targeting investors who are sustainability or ESG-minded. So it really runs the gamut there. In terms of the consultants, you know, they're, they're another key player in the industry in general as gatekeepers to institutional mandates. And you see a, a wide variety of different approaches there as well. Some consultants may be integrating ESG manager ratings and their overall kind of selection of, of funds that they're making recommendations to their clients. And so there's they're certainly you know, um, runs the gamut there as well. So maybe I'll take the opportunity now to pivot to specialized data vendors and the data, which, you know, as a systematic manager, our approach, we handle data. And really, it's been our approach since our founding 40 years ago is a very strong emphasis on financial data, but also ESG data 
really going back to the early 2000s, we've got a lot of experience in sourcing, handling, enriching, uh, augmenting that data. So I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of a caveat and how investors may want to think about using ESG data. But I'll, I'll highlight the positives first. You know, a lot of these data providers, if you think about MSCI, ISS, let's see, S&P, Sustainalytics, Morningstar, they're aggregating a ton of ESG information. They're serving that up in a way that's easily digestible for, for many different clients nowadays. And you know, generally, that's, that's been a good thing, I would say. It's just important to understand which the nature of the ESG data. If you think about financial data, it's often audited, it's you know, reported, it's objective. ESG data is oftentimes not that way. It's very rarely audited, maybe very subjective, depending on the issue that you're trying to capture and measure. Uh, if you think about you know, kind of equity pra- practices or human capital management practices at a firm, different providers may have different ways of, of managing how well a firm is doing. You know, if it's uh, they're looking at sort of the disclosure that's provided by a particular company and the quality of that disclosure, another data provider might be looking at lawsuits brought against the company or, or controversies related to labor rights issues. So like you said, there's just some measures that are more subjective than the others and, and data providers can measure those in a variety of ways. That compounds when you're talking about rolling up to a prepackaged sort of ESG score, whether you're evaluating an investment manager or an individual company. And we see a lot of dispersion across data providers when they're you know, providing a sort of all-in ESG score because of some of these issues that you've you've highlighted. I, I think, scoping. I, I, think I, I saw some data points that if you look at the correlation between the ratings of like Moody's and S&P, which again, mm-hmm. are focused more on financial factors, it, the correlation is like 0.99. And I think the statistic I saw for these rating agencies for ESG, it's something like 0.54. Yep. A lot more variability and, and probably because of you know, that more subjective nature potentially and, and, you know, what those, not just the, you know, what data is being gathered and evaluated, but then also how it's weighted. Absolutely. And so I, you know, I think the message here is just for investors, think of these sort of prepackaged ratings as, as being more opinions than objective facts, right? You can almost think of them as, as buy, sell, hold recommendations, that you would see on like sell-side analysts or something. So just kind of to view them in that light and maybe pivoting and thinking about what are the issues that you're trying to really address? Are they able to be managed, uh, measured and, and reported in an objective way? And is there transparent reporting available so that you can see how your manager is actually acting on those stated objectives and, and the efficacy of their approach? You know, With sustainability ESG meaning so many different things, having that clear line of sight, we've found to be very important and ultimately helps keep investors in their seats and comfortable that their investments are well aligned with their sustainability principles. So there are other players as well, You know, moving along from specialized data vendors, you've got the activists that you're talking about. And we're generally not referring to hedge fund activists, although we've seen some small hedge fund activists from Engine One, for example, winning some seats on Exxon's board recently. But typically, we're talking about like nonprofit organizations that are taking a small stake in a company and trying to affect change through shareholder proposals or engagements with the company. Other players in the ecosystem, regulators, we've, we've talked about the DOL, the SEC, there's various stewardship codes, UK stewardship code, Japan stewardship code, which seek to establish investment stewardship best practices. And then moving on to, to experts, you know, we talked about the fact that environmental issues lend themselves to really what the science says matters. And for us, it's important that we're consulting with experts, uh, climate scientists, economists, experts in, in emissions reporting. So we, we do a lot of work with uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography, economists at University of Chicago, climate data experts at Greenhouse Gas Management Institute. And so having those relationships and, and accumulating that knowledge over the years is, is very important and really being confident that what we're trying to target and in our offerings is backed by science and is reliable. Just really quickly from a, you know, from a regulator perspective, you know, what I, I had mentioned and we briefly talked about just the DOL guidance kind of being in flux and, and what that looks like. And, and perhaps that has 
created that uncertainty has created more of a maybe a slower growth of ESG within kind of the ERISA space. And, and, you know, I think you probably see ESG options more in larger plans. And I think the data kind of proved this, proves this out as opposed to kind of the smaller market that has, has really not kind of jumped on the bandwagon so far. What do you think plan fiduciaries want to consider given kind of the, the uncertainty and, and, Given the the guidance, you know, how would you recommend, you know, fiduciary advisors, committees? What are some of the things they want to think about that they want to be aware of, and and if they do want to invest in ESG or provide those options to their participants, to their employees, what are some of the things that that they need from kind of a clear line of sight as you as you mentioned it before? Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, for us, and this just kind of goes back to why we came to market with some of our ESG offerings in the first place, going back to uh, the early 2000s. You know, when we looked around at the landscape at the time, a lot of dedicated ESG, and it wasn't called ESG at that point in time, but a lot of these, you know, responsible investment offerings were very concentrated in nature. They're relatively high cost, not particularly transparent in, in determining, you know, kind of clear link between stated objectives and outcomes. And that's when we decided we could add value through our approach, which really starts with those first principles that are fundamental to providing a good investment solution, diversification, cost-effective implementation, a systematic approach, transparent approach. You know, we think these things are just as important in ESG dedicated offerings as they are in maybe non-ESG dedicated offerings. And so that would be my advice is, you know, you you shouldn't sacrifice those sound investment principles in pursuit of you know, specific ESG outcomes. And I think that's largely consistent with you know, some of the, the ERISA, the landscape. You know, the, the way I interpret, and I'm not, I'm not counsel, but the way I interpret the recent ruling is you know, it doesn't prohibit ESG investments. It just says that plan investments can't sacrifice returns for ESG. And so uh, you know, it becomes even more important to maintain and conserve those, those sound investment principles that we believe in, and we believe have been shown to uh, provide reliable investment experiences for investors over time. You know, the, the and, and we'll get into this, I think, but, but DFA really kind of pioneering, you know, you, you may not want to hear, but kind of the, the more of the, the factor investing and tilting and, and tilting towards the portfolio dimensions that have been shown to drive higher expected returns over time. So tilting towards things like small cap, tilting towards value, you know, tilting towards profitability. What what kind of evidence is is there? And and that's all very evidence-based and researched backed. And and from what you just said, that still forms kind of the the foundational approach to how you guys construct portfolios, not sacrificing those things for ESG priorities. But has there been evidence that you've been able to find? Is there is there a correlation between these ESG factors and higher expected returns or overall lower portfolio risk? Yeah, I, I love the question. We, we get it very often. And then shortly followed up with this question, we tend to get the question of, can it potentially hurt returns? So uh, <laughs> let me take the yeah the, the first part of that. You know, it, the short answer is uh, we don't find there to be compelling evidence that ESG criteria as a kind of standalone signal, for example, gives us additional information to identify companies with higher or lower expected returns. You know, if we were if we could identify companies with lower expected returns through ESG criteria, that would also be helpful because we just underweight or exclude those. So it's sort of twofold. So we don't find reliable, like I said, evidence or information that that ESG criteria gives us additional information about expected returns across companies. And that's sort of based on the intuition. You know, one of our core principles is that markets reflect relevant information about a company, that that information is reflected in price. So it's not a surprise that the ESG profile of a company, whether it's good, bad, or in between, would be reflected in the prices investors are willing to pay or, or receive if they're selling securities. And so it's it's not a surprise that when we look at the academic literature, when we do internal studies, that focusing on an ESG approach, we don't find is 
explanatory or, or provides reliable information about future expected returns of companies. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore ESG information in our broader equity offerings and certainly not in our um, ESG dedicated offerings. We incorporate ESG information not as a way of identifying companies with higher or lower expected returns, but to better manage risks in the portfolios. And also, as we've talked about before, engage with companies, vote proxies, improve governance practices. Because at the end of the day, we think by improving governance practices of companies, like I said, prices are going to reflect current information. That should reflect a higher price if we're able to improve those governance practices, which is ultimately good for our investors. Uh, so that's how we're viewing ESG you know, kind of broadly in, in terms of a, a signal for higher or lower expected returns. And of course, you know, we've got clients who are interested in targeted ESG outcomes. And that's where sort of the motivation comes for offering our sustainability and our socially screened portfolios. So one of the, the things is, you know, when I look at, at dimensional and, and again, where a lot of your research for how you construct portfolios, you know, you've got large and lengthy amounts of data, you know, in the US, you've got data that goes back to the 1920s, you know, I think internationally goes back to like 1970 and then in the emerging markets, you know, in the late, in the late eighties, early nineties, given the fact that, that kind of an ESG focus or bent is more of a, is a relatively new phenomenon. Do you think that, that not being able to kind of necessarily see a correlation is that there's just not enough data yet to, to be reliable, that that potentially could change, you know, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years from now when there's a more robust data set, there may be an opportunity to find that there is more of a correlation between ESG factors and expected returns? Certainly possible, yeah. And that's, that's an area of ongoing research, I would say, for us. You kind of alluded to the fact that ESG, reliable ESG data hasn't been around all that long. We've, we've performed internal studies on um, using emissions data going back, I want to say maybe 15 years or so, which is the, the longest data set that we had available. And I'd encourage listeners, if they're interested in, in looking at some of the results there, just Googling, or you can go onto our public website. You could Google greenhouse gas emissions and expected returns dimensional, and it'll come up as your first hit. I'll put that but, in uh, as well. So we'll put a link to that for listeners. Great. I appreciate that. But yeah, we could certainly see that. And it's an area of ongoing study for us. One of the ways we could see that manifest would be ESG profile or information about a company is predictive of future profitability at that company or future cash flows that investors would have claims to. And that might help in identifying differences in expected returns or discount rates that are being demanded. As of now, we, we don't see that as being a reliable indicator above and beyond what we know to be good proxies of expected future cash flows, which are current profitability across companies. But, but yeah, it's certainly an area of ongoing research. So talk a little bit about Dimensional's process for you know, constructing portfolios. Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. I mentioned our, our broader approach and how we're integrating ESG. And I sort of left off with saying that we do have clients who are interested in achieving targeted ESG outcomes. And so that's really where our dedicated ESG offerings come into play. And so when I talk about building these types of offerings, I'm talking about our, our sustainability portfolios, our socially screened portfolios, and some of the objectives for those, which differ in appealing to certain clients. But first and foremost, I'll go back and echoing a theme that we've talked about, which is when we're constructing these offerings, we're starting with the same investment principles, diversified, cost-effective, systematic pursuit of the premiums that we're, we're looking to target. And that serves as that chassis, that's a robust uh, foundation that we can then integrate criteria around sustainability or social screens. And that's really important if you look at just the, the sheer number of holdings in these funds, you're talking you know, 9,000 plus companies in our sustainability offerings across 47 markets and our socially screened, you're talking over 10,000 companies or so. So when I say diversified, I'm, I'm really talking diversified. And then we're going to, uh, like I said, integrate sustainability and social considerations. For our sustainability strategies, the primary goal for those are to reduce exposure to greenhouse gas emissions. And you might ask, you know, why greenhouse gas emissions? Why such a targeted 
sort of primary objective. And it's intentional. It's first, we think it's important to start with a very targeted approach, particularly when you're talking about such a diversified offering, because with a diversified offering, if you're trying to address a large number of variables, you're not going to have a large impact in any one direction. You're not going to move the needle. And so by having a more targeted approach, specifically as it relates to reducing exposure to emissions, we're able to really achieve meaningful reduction in exposure to emissions for our sustainability strategies. You know, the second aspect of it is we talked about that importance of having a scientific link between the stated objective and the impact on you know these systemic issues that are facing the world. Emissions have been identified as being linked to climate change, global warming, and anthropogenic emissions in particular, human-generated emissions. And so that serves as the motivation as to why we're focusing on emissions. Global warming as a topic area, you know, is pretty wide-ranging. It's not only environmental in nature, but it's also has wide-ranging impacts on human welfare. If you think about decimation of forestry and crops, displacement of people on coastlines with with rising sea levels, rising incidence of heat waves, increases deaths. So there's a whole number of of knock-on effects associated with climate change, global warming, which makes focusing on emissions for us a particular and and primary um, feature of these strategies. So Um, what I'm I'm hearing you say is that mm -hmm. if you look at all the potential factors that greenhouse gas emissions you know, is probably a primary driver of climate change. And therefore, you're going to be able to move the needle the most by focusing on on, on that, if you will. So in some ways, you know, you're still implementing broad diversification across these portfolios, but you're concentrating the focus around greenhouse gas emissions. That's correct. Absolutely. You got it. There are other considerations. Green, reducing exposure to emissions is certainly a primary design feature. What are some There's of the other, What are some of the other uh, considerations in the sustainable strategies? Right. So we are screening for companies that have exposure to coal, that have meaningful revenue from palm oil production, that in factory farming, that have been tied to controversies in child labor, that have meaningful revenue exposure to tobacco and then certain firearms screens as well. So you're getting some additional considerations in there, but you know, certainly a key design element is reducing emissions. Another benefit of focusing on emissions, we've talked about some of the, the, the limitations of ESG data. Emissions are objective, they're measurable, and therefore they're reportable to investors. And so we've got the stated objective of reducing emissions upfront, We provide reporting to investors that demonstrates the efficacy of that approach, reducing emissions, and we we publish that regularly. So investors at the end of the day can see these meaningful reductions in the the emissions footprint of the portfolio and uh, have confidence that their investments are are well aligned with those sustainability principles. So it's it's really important from a transparency standpoint that there's that clear line of sight. So those are our sustainability strategies. For the social screen strategies, You know, we talked before, but social criteria that tends to be a little bit more values-based and can depend on the individual investor. For the social funds, we're employing screens that are generally aligned with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishop Investment Guidelines. We do have separate accounts and and other clients who are invested in the social strategies, which, you know, aren't Catholic-affiliated necessarily. So, you know, that's not to say that, that that amounts to all of our clients that are invested in those strategies. At the end of the day, there's not a quote unquote right way to identify social criteria, but we do try to focus on those criteria that we believe we can get reliable data on and that can be implemented as part of a diversified investment offering. And what, what, so, so from an implementation standpoint, so just mm-hmm. help kind of understand again, to kind of avoid, are you screening out companies entirely or are you just, you know, maybe underweighting some of the the bad actors, if you will, within the portfolio to maintain really kind of a market-based diversified approach. Yeah, it's it's great. And it's actually, um, we're taking slight approaches between our socially screened versus our sustainability strategies. And it comes down to, I think, just the the nature of these these issues. If you think about social issues, they tend to elicit more black and white responses for investors. 
if a company were to flag on certain criteria, it makes sense to have more of a binary implementation approach in or out. And so when we talk about the socially screened, they are screened in that companies that hit certain criteria that would flag on those social criteria, we will exclude them from the portfolio. Now on the sustainability side, if you think about the, the nature of sustainability and, and emissions in particular, there are green companies, there are brown companies or dirty companies. There's a lot of gray in between. And so we actually have in the design of the sustainability portfolios, we're overweighting companies that have lower emissions profiles relative to their sector peers and underweighting and excluding companies that have higher emissions profiles relative to their sector peers, and then also at the overall portfolio level. And, and that approach of overweighting, underweighting is pretty unique within the industry. We actually have several patents out on that, that approach and just represents an, you know, a recent innovation that we've brought to market with these particular portfolios. Is there any impact on you know, like trading costs or anything as it relates to kind of expenses and the cost to implement these types of portfolios? Or is, is that not much of a consideration? I'd say it could be depending on your manager's approach. Now for us, as you're aware, and, and many of your listeners might be aware, we, we don't track a, an index, we're index agnostic. And that means we're not handcuffed to adding or, or uh, removing names on any particular frequency. We are in the market participating in the natural market volume every day. And so any trading activity that we're doing in these portfolios is, is spread out over time, it allows us to, um, like I said, not push prices in an adverse way. So that's the first part is, you know, whether we're talking about our sustainability and social portfolios or our non-ESG dedicated portfolios, uh, we're really able to keep those trading costs very low. Because your goal uh, to begin to with. Minimize, your goal isn't to minimize tracking error. It's to Correct. you know maintain exposure. And so you have some some, you know, when the index, since you're not tracking commercial indexes, when those indexes reconstitute and it's kind of a forced trade. You guys can be more patient in terms of of when you're, you know, when you're trading and what you're trading. Yeah, and uh, and we've we could go on a whole tangent here, but we've you know seen this play out in spades recently with the addition of Tesla to the S and P, and you know the the meme stock phenomenon, and just having that flexibility to react to information and current prices like you said, helps us stay focused on the asset class, helps us stay focused on securities with higher returns and helps reduce trading costs uh, because we're spreading that turnover over time. So that that's sort of the first and foremost. Specific to the sustainability and socially screened portfolios, you know, these criteria, we've designed them such that, and we've implemented them in the design of these portfolios such that it's pretty sticky in nature. Think about like the worst offenders in terms of potential emissions from fossil fuel reserves. Those are going to be your Exxon, Chevron, Royal Dutch Shell, BP. They've got reserves and are going to continue to have fossil fuel reserves for quite a while. And so that whole constituency isn't going to change year to year all that much. And so it's certainly a design element of these portfolios that we want to target and implement as part of the design, being mindful of you know, turnover and, and those costs involved. We, we want to minimize unnecessary turnover to the largest extent possible. How do you see just the kind of the, you mentioned early on is that um, obviously there's a rise of interest in ESG. It's a quickly kind of evolving space. There's a lot more product now that's kind of being developed. The industry is very good about, I would say, kind of chasing popular themes and then creating products to kind of meet, you know, meet market demand. Where do you see the industry going over the next five to 10 years? What do you think, what do you think the landscape looks like for ESG investing? You know, I think it's a very bright future for ESG investing. Like I said, there's been this proliferation of data and, and option. And then I think also something that we're seeing develop is sort of this idea of mass customization. You know, at Dimensional, we're launching enhanced SMA platform that is going to allow separate, you know, smaller minimum SMA, uh, separately managed accounts to incorporate ESG factors and criteria that is more individualistic, you know, what is important to that particular investor. And I, I imagine we'll continue to see offerings come to, uh, come to the table that are, that are 
driven by the individual investor and their beliefs and, and preferences. And, and so I think that's really exciting development. I know we're very excited at Dimensional to be coming to market with that. And, and that's going to be launching this year. So if you were sitting, you know, obviously you come from the portfolio management, asset management side, but, you know, is, is if you were to put, you know, kind of sit on the side of the table as advisors who, you know, one of the, the good things is that there are more offerings that are out there. One of the challenging things is as an advisor, you know, how do you develop a framework to evaluate and implement, you know, these strategies? Like what would you, what would be your advice to advisors in terms of both increasing their knowledge in this area, but also developing their own kind of framework for how they determine, you know, implementation of these types of portfolios? Well, this is going to sound self-serving, but I think Dimensional is a good thought leader here and <laughs> to turn to your, your friendly Dimensional, um, you know, contact or whoever and look at, you know, going on the public website, there's a lot of materials out there for you guys to peruse. But, you know, more seriously too, it goes back to before, you know, you certainly don't want to throw away sound investment principles. So of course, that's going to serve as an important foundation. Secondly, we've kind of hit this before at the beginning of our conversation, there isn't this universal definition, which can complicate things from an ESG perspective. But it also, I think, allows for advisors, fiduciaries to add value and bringing expertise and guidance to the table. And so ultimately, what I think that means is that as advisors, you shouldn't place too much emphasis, you know, a right or wrong or sort of prepackaged ESG rating or score that you're better served to identify which specific ESG issues are most important to clients and understanding the data that's being used by your investment manager and how those data are being used, and then asking to see transparent reporting on the outcomes, right? Which is really important in just in terms of monitoring and transparency and making sure that you're, you know, we have all sorts of monitoring techniques to ensure that a manager is delivering on the returns and risk side of things. It makes sense that you want to be able to monitor the stated ESG outcomes that that manager is pursuing as well. That makes sense. So I, you know, I usually ask this at kind of the end of, uh, of each episode is what would be your single best piece of advice specifically for ERISA fiduciaries, whether that's committee members, whether that's advisors, but what would be your single best piece of advice for them as they think about, you know, ESG investing and how to incorporate these types of, of options within a defined contribution structure? Yeah, I, I think... Maybe just to add to to the prior statement and echo a lot of of what we've talked about, you know, focus on first principles, like we said, you know, what is a good investment in terms of diversified, cost-effective, systematic, transparent approach for non-ESG solutions should be the same criteria that you're looking for for ESG solutions. So not sacrificing those, those principles. And then, you know, getting super clear on what you're trying to achieve and deliver through your investment offering and understanding, you know, lifting the hood a bit, getting underneath the hood and, and understanding what the manager is saying they're intending to deliver and then monitoring whether they're actually delivering that. And obviously some ESG data is going to lend itself to that monitoring and, and being able to, to understand the, uh, the impact of a manager's approach better than other data. So just having a, an eye as to which data is going to be most effective and employing in a particular investment approach, and then having the reporting and requesting their reporting so that there's transparency and a clear line of sight. Yeah, it seems to me that that uh, good advice there. That that really, in most cases, you know, ESG needs to be kind of a tool. ESG strategies need to be kind of a tool in the toolbox that an advisor has, and then it really comes down to client engagement and and there's some really interesting, probably meaningful conversations. That can be had with clients to understand first and foremost is ESG something that that they or their their people care about, and if not, then you know it's it's maybe a you know maybe a pass and it, it won't be a, a priority for the client. But if it is, really drilling down deeply into okay, when we think about you know E, we think about S, we think about G, you know what are the most important things maybe subjectively 
to that client. And then based on that, having a framework to say, okay, if, if environmental is the, the primary focus, here's how we're going to implement. If social is the primary focus, here's how we're going to implement. Is that fair? Yes, I would say so. Well, this has been awesome, Will. I've really appreciated it. I think you've, you've provided some, some awesome insights and, and, and analysis and talking points for the audience. Where can people go to stay in touch with you, connect with you, or stay in touch with, with Dimensional and what you guys are doing on the ESG front? And I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. You know, we've, been, we've had a concerted effort as a, as a firm in the last two years in particular to be more front-footed about all the work that we have been doing on ESG, you know, for example, we uh, we were recently were certified as climate neutral from the South Pole Group, and so we've we've really gained a lot of expertise, and um, we're just trying to be more front footed and sharing that with our clients. And so, I just encourage you to take a look at our public website dfaus.com and go to the insights blog there. There's a stewardship section as well on the public website. So take a look. And of course, we're we're out there and active in uh, LinkedIn and other public media as well. And then, you know, if you've got a dimensional representative, encourage you to reach out to them for more information. Would love to have conversations with you guys. Like I said, it's an area that we're super excited about. And so would jump at the opportunity to to have continued conversations with any of you. Well, thanks for being on the show, Will, and really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Will Collins-Dean from Dimensional. If you'd like more information or to learn more, please go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.